0: This is a CBC Podcast. Get your daily dose of Canadian history from the CBC Digital Archives. Complete with clips from radio and television, find out what happened in the On This Day section at cbc.ca slash archives. I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas about climate change skepticism.
1: Energy Pro was the first organization in Canada to warn about the potential dangers of climate change. We had always considered it credible, but what grated me was that anybody who dissented was being treated so deplorably. In the last few years,
0: the idea has gotten around that only a lunatic fringe is unconvinced of the reality of climate change. Dissenters from the Gospel, according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, are said to be shills for the oil companies, purveyors of junk science, or outright kooks. Al Gore compares climate change deniers, as he calls them, with people who believe that the earth is flat, or that the moon landing was staged on a movie lot. Larry Solomon isn't persuaded. He's the executive director of Energy Probe, one of Canada's largest and oldest environmental organizations. In 2006, he began a series of columns in the National Post in which he profiled prominent scientists who dissent from current global warming orthodoxy. He's now turned these columns into a book called The Deniers, the world renowned scientists who stood up against global warming hysteria, political persecution, and fraud. Today on Ideas, he talks about what he's discovered with one of our producers,
2: David Cayley. When climate change was first widely discussed in the 1980s, I took an agnostic view. The theory seemed plausible, but when I reflected on the number of assumptions that must be involved in modeling something as complex as the Earth's climate, I was doubtful. If a local forecast of the next day's weather is often enough wrong, how reliable are predictions of the Earth's future climate likely to be? Then, as the 1990s gave way to the new millennium, evidence seemed to accumulate. The media were full of retreating glaciers, thawing permafrost, collapsing ice shelves, more intense storms, polar bears stranded on melting ice floes. The scientific consensus began to seem unassailable. In a book that influenced me, New Yorker writer Elizabeth Colbert's Field Notes from a Catastrophe, she states that in legitimate scientific circles, those are her words, it is virtually impossible to find evidence of disagreement over the fundamentals of global warming. The science is settled has become the usual way of putting this position. Rapid warming is imminent. The only remaining question is whether prompt and drastic remedial action can prevent it from turning into a catastrophic runaway. That was the view taken by Gwynne Dyer, for example, in his recent ideas series, Climate Wars. I was surprised, therefore, when I heard of Lawrence Solomon's book, The Deniers, with its claim, first, that the science is not settled, and second, that debate has been stifled and dissenters stigmatized. Larry Solomon is someone I respect and take seriously, on the basis both of his writings and his work at Energy Probe. I've interviewed him for ideas in the past, and always found his views to be thoughtful and well-argued. My surprise increased when I read the book. For there he was able to show that many eminent and highly qualified scientists do dissent from the idea that carbon dioxide and other human-produced greenhouse gases are the main drivers of climate change. A lot is at stake, so I decided to invite Solomon down to the idea studio for an interview. I asked him first about his title, The Deniers.
1: It's an ironic title. It's meant to be ironic. The... Scientists who disagree with Al Gore are castigated. And one of the pejoratives used against them, the most common pejorative, is calling them a denier. And it's, it comes from the term Holocaust deniers, the people who are putting down scientists for not believing in the reality of climate change are likening them to Holocaust deniers who don't believe in the reality of the, of the Holocaust under Hitler. And that this is what a scientist can expect if he dissents. He, he can expect to be likened to someone who doesn't believe that the Holocaust occurred. And why do you think
2: this has happened?
1: Well, Al Gore has been making the case that the science has settled since the early 1990s. He was making that case when Gallup polls and, and, and a Greenpeace poll showed that the majority of scientists did not believe that. So Al Gore was beating this drum for a very long time, and he's been very successful in beating this drum.
2: Al Gore has argued in his popular film An Inconvenient Truth and elsewhere that accelerated climate change is now an obvious and incontrovertible scientific fact, so obvious, in fact, that dissent can only be accounted as obscurantism or bad faith. But the climate, when you think about it, is an extraordinarily complex and problematic object, and any model of its past, present, and future states must involve layer upon layer of assumptions and interpretations. Where does weather end and climate begin? How much variation is natural? How do you know what's causing what? So does it really make sense to treat a question this involved as a scientific slam dunk? I asked Larry Solomon what he thinks is at issue.
1: What is not in dispute is that temperatures have been rising over the last few centuries. What is in dispute is the cause of those temperature rises. That, in a nutshell, is what it's about. Some say that the cause of the warming that we've seen uh, is natural. Some say the cause is primarily man-made, Some say it's a little bit of both.
2: Let's take one of the well-known symptoms then, melting Arctic ice, which is one of the
1: main sources of, I think, catastrophic imagery. Is that occurring? It's clear that it has been occurring. It's not clear that it's continuing to occur. It's also clear that in the past it has occurred. You know, Northwest Passage, a uh, hundred years ago was navigable. The imagery that we get, a lot of that is just false. For example, the the notion that polar bears are being wiped out uh, is false. The, the polar bear population has actually increased on the whole, although there's, there's one island where the population decreased. What
2: about Antarctic ice?
1: Antarctic ice is... Um, in a way, the most serious of the concerns, because the catastrophic failure that, that people fear is a melting of Antarctica, which would then lead to a, a rising of the oceans. And Antarctica is the, the main source of potential uh, water. There actually isn't that much ice that could be melt that could melt in um, in the Arctic. The, uh, a lot of the Arctic ice is already in the water, so it, it wouldn't. So lead floating
2: to- ice. There's no net change in the volume right. of
1: the sea. That's right. So so a lot of the focus has gone on the ice in Antarctica. Well, on the collapse of the ice shelf. Well, lots of the, the calving that occurs has occurred, but that's always occurred. What's important... Calving is the falling off of... That's right, the falling off of, of huge chunks of ice at a time. But it's where that calving occurs is in the more accessible areas of uh, Antarctica, and it also happens to be in the, in the warmer parts. There's only one way to measure whether the ice in Antarctica is increasing or decreasing, and that's through satellite measurements because it's, it's a vast, vast, inaccessible continent. And the satellite measurements are now in, and they show that Antarctica has been thickening, that, in fact, it's, it's been gaining ice of late, and we also know that in the, in the one station that has been there since the 1950s, temperatures have actually become colder, and we've had reliable temperatures at the same spot for half a century now. That's so much against what one has understood. It's true. I think there has been an enormous failure in the press to do its reporting. It is not interested in the contrary evidence. And there is an enormous amount of contrary evidence. The press simply is not interested. This interview by you is, is, I don't know if you realize it. it, it's very unusual. In my position at Energy Probe, I'm called all the time by the press. A lot of my uh, newspaper columns in the National Post, even if they're on an obscure subject, I will be called by the press to comment on that. I've written this series in the Post. There, there have been something like 40 of them and before uh, my book was published, and many others since then. The press almost never calls Certainly not CBC. So this is a first for me.
2: This is, I think, hard to understand. Anybody who, has, who works for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or is, you can identify a class of people who would have a vested interest. But why, why the, the sort of general... Why this powerful thought form that that prevents you from being interviewed, let's say, involving people who seemingly don't have an interest, and, and why would
1: they want to believe that doom is imminent? In the case of the press, I think it's primarily fear that members of the press don't want to be labeled as deniers. And they have been told by others that they're giving credibility to a fringe notion that will ultimately lead the planet to catastrophe. So there's a lot of pressure on the press not to report this story. So the press is acting very atypically in, in, in all my years at Energy Probe. I've never seen a situation like this. The closest actually would be the, uh, on nuclear power when there was reluctance, say in the 70s, prior to Three Mile Island, there was reluctance among members of the press to report problems or potential problems with nuclear power, but nothing like what is happening now.
2: Larry Solomon argues that a premature and, in his experience, unprecedented closure has been imposed on debate about climate change. So how did this happen? He identifies a number of key reports and releases from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which he thinks swayed public opinion. The IPCC, as it's known, was set up in 1988 by the World Meteorological Organization and the United Nations Environment Program, and it has been providing governments with scientific advice since then. In 2001, its report contained a graph showing global temperatures going through the roof.
1: A scientist by the name of Michael Mann and, and colleagues of his came up with a model that showed, it showed that there had been, until recently, fairly stable temperatures on Earth for the last 1,000 years, pretty well. And then in the last 100 years, temperatures shot up. And this is called the the hockey stick. Because uh, for a thousand years, you had the long blade, sorry, the long handle handle of the hockey stick, and then the blade is the last last hundred years. A lot of people haven't heard of the hockey stick model, but they've heard of the publicity surrounding it because that hockey stick model was accepted by the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It became the focus of one of their major reports. And what that hockey stick model showed was that 1998 was the hottest year of the hottest decade of the hottest century of the last 1,000 years. And that model, that announcement, is what I think turned public opinion around. People paid attention to the climate change debate from that point in a way that they hadn't earlier because it seemed as if something dramatically different was now happening and public opinion turned around. Now that model became highly disputed and the dispute reached such an intensity that it actually went to the U.S. Congress. And hearings were held into the validity of that model. What the uh, panel at the House of Rep- Representatives did was put together a blue chip panel to investigate the Michael Ma- Man model, to resolve the dispute in effect. And the, the head of that panel was uh, a scientist called Wegman, who is perhaps the most prominent statistician in the United States. He was a former head of the National Academies of Sciences uh, statistical wing. He looked into the hockey stick model and he was shocked by the results. What he found was that man did not have the academic background uh, in statistics to do the type of modeling he was required to do. He found that man's colleagues didn't have that background. He found that the peer reviewers didn't have that background. He found, in in effect, that they are what's called in statistics a clique, where they all uh, are self-reinforcing. And the result was that the model that they produced had no statistical validity. What you could do is throw any data you wanted into that model, and you would get a hockey stick graph. You could throw baseball stats into that model, and you would get a hockey stick shape. So that hockey stick shape, that hockey stick graph, which has been so important in influencing public opinion, is now widely discredited. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has withdrawn it from its subsequent reports, except as as a sort of historical footnote. But yet, there still is this perception that something very different has gone on. There still is a perception that the 1990s were a very, very hot decade. In fact, it was a hot decade, but it wasn't the hottest decade. There was an error. That was NASA statistics... They happen to be kept by James Hansen, who is a, a large. He's the, the the most important proponent. NASA, you said.
2: NASA. Yeah, the National Aeronautics and Space
1: Administration. That's right. Who who happened to be the the largest funders in the world of climate change science. We have the largest budget in the world. But uh, Hansen made a an error, just a a simple error in in keeping the data. And it turns out that the nineteen nineties weren't the hottest decade. Turns out that the 1930s were the hottest decade. So NASA has revised its statistics. Its website is now correct. But we don't hear that it was really the 1930s. And it's only because the press isn't reporting the fact that NASA got it wrong.
2: One of the reasons the hockey stick graph was discredited is because it was designed according to Larry Solomon, to minimize climate variation over the last thousand years and to exaggerate it over the last century. Global temperature, as you can imagine, is almost as complicated an idea as global climate. Where do you take your readings? How do you weight them in creating an average? Before the mid-19th century, when continuous temperature records begin, You have to use what scientists call proxies, tree rings, say, from which you can infer the temperature in a given year. Even so, Solomon says, there is broad agreement that global warming has been underway since the middle of the 17th century.
1: Temperatures are continually increasing and falling, but the slope generally has been an increase of about half a degree centigrade. Per century. So the 1900s, temperatures were increased by about half a degree. The 1800s by about half a degree. The 1700s by about half a degree. And the last half of the 1600s by about half a degree. So we've seen this very slow, steady increase over the centuries, albeit with with blips. This is the period uh, when we started coming out of the Little Ice Age in, in the mid 1600s, in the early 1600s, Europe was very cold. You know, Shakespeare wrote about the cold. That's when the Dutch invented the skate. We've been gradually coming out of the Little Ice Age for centuries, at a steady rate. The last hundred years, was, there's been a lot of industrialization. Prior to that, we can't really blame it on SUVs.
2: Can you talk for a moment since we're on this historical record above the the
1: so-called medieval warm period? This is about a thousand years ago. It's when the Vikings colonized Greenland. Grapes grew in eastern Canada. they grew in England at that time. It was a period of, of flowering. It was a warmer period than we have now and there's a great deal of consensus that that was a very warm period, and there's a lot of consensus that we went into a little ice age a few hundred years after that. This makes the the hockey stick graph all the more incredible because when this data was accepted, in effect, it threw out all that we had known about the great warming that occurred earlier and the and the great cooling that occurred earlier. Can we come back a little bit to some of
2: your actual cases? One of the ones that I found interesting was the again, I think, partly because it's so widely believed now, is that the increase in, in number and severity of storms, tropical storms
1: particularly. Is that true? It's not true according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change itself. Their scientist, his name is Lancey, he's a hurricane specialist. He actually wrote the sections of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report for them, which they accepted, and it showed that hurricane activity has not been affected due to global warming that was the official position of the IPCC. Then in the US there was a spate of hurricanes. Hurricane Katrina was the, the most dramatic of them, but it was there was a terrible hurricanes season and people were pointing the finger at climate change. They were saying this is a result of global warming. And it was just an irresistible opportunity for people to proselytize Lancy's boss at the IPCC decided to hold a press conference announcing that there was a link between global warming and all the hurricanes that were occurring well when Lancy saw this he, he said what's, what's going on he said, I'm the one who's doing this science there's no evidence of this at all uh, there, there must be some mistake here and the answer that came back is, uh, no, we have to proceed with this press conference. So then Lancy went to more senior people. He tried to call off the press conference, but everywhere, no one was interested in stopping it. It was such a good opportunity to make the point that the higher-ups at the IPCC decided to go ahead with it. So they did the press conference occurred. It was very successful. Headlines around the world. The IPCC was confirming that this hurricane activity was being caused by man's activities. And after it, Lancy resigned. But he didn't actually resign because that press conference occurred. He resigned because he asked for assurances that the IPCC would never again distort the truth this way and they refused to give him those assurances.
2: Christopher Lanzi took the view, based on his research, that no reliable correlation could yet be made between warming and tropical storm activity. Edward Wegman debunked the hockey stick graph for its abuse of sound statistical method. In Larry Solomon's book, these two men appear alongside dozens of other well-credentialed scientists all ironically styled as deniers. But all most of them are actually denying is that the science is settled. Some do regard global warming as a threat and only question the validity of some of the methods and models that have been used to predict the future. Others doubt that CO2 plays the prominent role that current orthodoxy assigns to it. And then there are those who are studying things which have so far been left out of the IPCC's models, like the ways in which changes in the sun's activity affect Earth's climate. One of these scientists is Dr. Habibulo Abdusamatov, who heads the Space Research Laboratory at St. Petersburg's Polkovo Astronomical Observatory.
1: He makes the point that we have global warming, on Mars. We have global warming on various planets where we can measure it. And he assures us that the cause of global warming on Mars is not Martians. <laughs> <laughs> and that the cause of global atmosphere? warming the cause of global warming on Earth is not Earthlings. He says th- that there's a common reason for the global warming in the various planets, and that's the sun. We all share the same sun, and it's solar activity that warms or cools the planet. That's the dominant reason that a lot of scientists dissent from the view that CO2 is the culprit. How does the sun vary? Well, this is a, a matter of great dispute. The Sun has a variety of different cycles, an 11-year cycle and a 22-year cycle. But one of the most interesting research has come out of Denmark, where the Danish Space Agency has simulated the effect of cosmic rays on cloud formation. They've actually created clouds in a chamber.
2: Cosmic rays just means the What's coming towards us from the sun? Well, from, cosmic rays sounds kind of woo woo, but
1: it's fr- it's actually not from the sun. It's from the cosmos. It's from it's from all the stars. It's it's everything. Every, it's everything. All radiation reaching. It's all Earth. radiation coming to us. But when the sun's activity is stronger, the sun's magnetic field will will deflect cosmic rays, so Earth will get more or less cosmic activity depending on the strength of the sun. If you have more cosmic activity, you're going to have more clouds forming because it's the cosmic activity that seeds the clouds. And this is what the Danes were able to reproduce in a chamber. And they were told they would never be able to accomplish this, that their theory, which was a contrary theory to the conventional theory of, of climate change, they were told that this would never work. Well, it did work. And now there's more research being done. One of the largest research organizations in the world, it's called CERN in Geneva, is involved in a, a massive experiment to see if, if this will work. Now, what has happened to the scientists who
2: have tried to bring the sun's role into climate models?
1: Well, the, the experience of the Danes is instructive because when the IPCC first got off the ground. Delegations from all the various countries came together to decide what kind of research they would be doing and how to proceed. And the Danes had just published a study in Science Magazine, a very prominent peer-reviewed magazine, and it showed a strong correlation between solar activity and temperatures on Earth. So, When the IPCC was trying to figure out what they would study, the Danes said, well, this is one thing we should be looking at, is the role of the sun. And the IPCC said, said, sorry, we're only looking into man-made causes. It's outside our mandate to look at causes that are not man-made. This is formally part of the IPCC mandate. So they were told their research would not be done. But they are, they are castigated. They are accused of all kinds of things. They are badmouthed uh, by peers. They have all kinds of pressure by their own government. They have a, a tough time, but they are extraordinary scientists who have extraordinary uh, results, and they are persevering. The IPCC says that
2: its mandate is to study only human-induced global warming. But even this restricted focus still faces many uncertainties, according to the scientist's Larry Solomon quotes. There are different theories, for example, about how long carbon dioxide persists in the atmosphere. Some scientists estimate less than 10 years. The IPCC says over a hundred. There are doubts about the proxies that are used to estimate levels of CO2 in the past. One way this is done is by drilling deep into ice that has been frozen for thousands of years. The assumption is that the gases trapped in the ice have remained completely inert. But Solomon's authorities argue that this assumption is false. And then there's the issue of how to factor the aerosols
1: formed by air pollution into climate models. What's their effect? There's a a great deal of uncertainty about the effect of all the the aerosols. And in fact, the models, that even that the IPCC use, show that coal burning has two major effects. One is to put a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere, which warms the planet. The other is to put a lot of aerosols into the atmosphere, which cools the planet, And the IPCC's own models aren't clear on whether, so far, coal burning has, on balance, warmed the planet or cooled the planet. In other words, it's conceivable, based on on the models, that, so far, the coal burning has actually acted to cool the planet. How does that work? Because heat is, is reflected away? That's right. The aerosols... Soot is one of the aerosols, but there are many aerosols, and most of the soot is no longer there. But if we think of it in terms of soot, the soot prevents uh, sunlight from uh, coming down to Earth, and um, so it it has the effect of of keeping the Earth cooler. So they function, in effect, as clouds function. That's right, exactly. To reflect sunlight away. Yes, that's right.
2: Your subtitle Mm -hmm. is um, Scientists Who Stood Up Against Global Warming, Hysteria political persecution and fraud. Now, I'm sure a publisher wrote that, not you. That's but, right. But nevertheless, it's, it's said. And uh, what has been uh, the persecution of, of scientists who have dissented?
1: In some cases, they lose their jobs. In other cases, they lose their, their funding, In almost all cases, they are ridiculed. They are held up to contempt. They're called deniers. They find that life is made difficult for them if they speak out against the global warming orthodoxy. And yet the
2: authorities you cite here are a kind of who's who of climatology, paleoclimatology, statistics... It's very remarkable
1: the the credentials of the people who who well, are cited in your book, and it's not entirely a coincidence because when you are one of the very top scientists in the world, you have a certain kind of immunity. So if you are Antonini Zichichi, who is the discoverer of anti of, of nuclear uh, antimatter, and who uh, is the head of the world Federation of Scientists. You can speak out and you can be immune. If you're Freeman Dyson, who is one of the top physicists in in the U.S., the discoverer of the Triga, the inherently safe nuclear reactor used used in uh, hospitals and university labs around the world to produce isotopes. If you're someone of that stature, it's hard to attack you, although you're still attacked. But if you are Still making your career, if you still need funding, if you s- still need the support of your colleagues or the institution that you work for, it's very difficult for you to speak out. And that's why so many of the scientists whom I wrote about were ones at the end of their career. Many scientists I approach said, I can't speak to you on the record many said, I don't want to have anything to do with this. Many said, I've got a family, I've got a job, I've got a colleague. In some cases, they're willing to speak out, but if they do, their colleagues will turn on them, because not only might they lose their funding, but their entire university department might lose its funding. So the pressures on people are amazing, no matter... What your rank? You know The head of NASA went on national public radio in an interview and ventured the opinion that climate change was nothing to fuss about. He was turned on by numerous scientists, including his own members of his own staff. The major U.S. press castigated him within days he backed off he said i'm I should never have, have made any comment on this and i'm not going to discuss it again in future so he was cowed this is the head of nasa he's this is someone who with a a climate change budget over over a billion a year this is someone with with six degrees highly accomplished as a scientist he was cowed he was forced to back off because the antagonism toward anyone who disputes this orthodoxy can be so fierce. How do you see the issue yourself
2: just as an individual trying to form a judgment?
1: Hugely overblown, hugely hyped. Over the years, I've always learned to be suspicious when authorities won't present their data. This is the case very often in the global warming debate. Those who are saying catastrophe is coming won't release their data. Michael Mann would not release his data. James Hansen does not release his data. We're supposed to make profound decisions for society on the basis of theories from people who will not show us their data. You have to be suspicious when you're dealing with people who are afraid to show their cards.
2: I think of you as an environmentalist, charter environmentalist even, probably wouldn't be going too far. Probe has been there from the beginning of the organized environmental movement in Canada. How has it been for
1: you to take this view? I thought it would be hard. My colleagues at Energy Probe were, I think, very nervous when I started going down this path. There was a fear that we would lose our funding, that our supporters would turn away from us, that our colleagues in other environmental organizations would turn against us. And I faced quite a bit of skepticism within Energy Probe at the beginning. But none of that happened. First, my colleagues at energy probe came around they really couldn't believe how many of these scientists are out there but as they kept seeing them week after week I would produce another column with another scientist with credentials that were hard to beat they came around and I have found virtually no criticism from environmentalists and this includes uh, other prominent environmental organizations names that we're familiar with. Privately, they do not have a problem with with what I'm saying. They don't want to go public. Some of them fear for the consequences of environmentalism because if the public starts to perceive the global warming issue as having been hyped, there could be a backlash against all environmentalists. But the typical reaction I get from other environmentalists when we have a discussion about whether CO2 causes harm or not, is, well, so what? We don't want cars anyway. We don't like fossil fuels. We don't like urban sprawl. If the public thinks that CO2 creates all this harm and it leads to results that we like, such as the end of sprawl, a turn to renewable energy, what's the harm? That's a very common reaction I get. But in fact, there is harm because CO2 or the attempt to remove CO2 from the atmosphere, the attempt to comply with Kyoto, that has become the single greatest destroyer of the global environment. For example, carbon offsets. If you're feeling guilty about your next plane flight. You can give Air Canada 20 or 30 or $40, and they will use that money to offset the CO2 that your portion of, the, of your air flight is putting into the atmosphere. Well, the other half of that transaction is a purchase of a carbon sink to deal with that CO2. That carbon sink is typically in the third world. It's typically something like a eucalyptus plantation. Eucalyptus is a fast-growing tree, it's very effective at taking carbon out of the air. It, it's favored by people who promote these carbon schemes. Well, to get the land for that carbon, for that um, eucalyptus plantation, farmers are typically evicted from their land, usually without compensation or certainly without fair compensation. Or an old-growth forest might be taken down and replaced with a eucalyptus plantation. And this is only- Can we- you back that up? Yeah, so we have, you know, Energy Probe has uh, a large third world wing called Probe International. We deal with organizations in the third world, and they are up in arms. They are arranging for petitions to be signed saying stop these activities. They don't like these Kyoto-spurred policies, which they see as destroying their environment. It's not just happening with these eucalyptus plantations. Uh, In an attempt to replace fossil fuels, there's been a revival of large dams you know large dams stopping economic in the third world many decades ago all the good sites all the economic sites were taken and all that all that was left were the uneconomic sites well what, now thanks to carbon credits large hydro dams are again profitable so developers are building these dams everywhere and every time you build a dam you create a lot of ecological damage. Some, sometimes you're taking out an entire river valley, you're losing species, you're displacing people with these dams. So a huge amount of upset is occurring in the third world, spawned by these attempts by the West to deal with a, a CO2 problem.
2: What are the mechanics of this, let's say vis-a-vis a dam that, is be, that would not have been economic, How does it become economic uh, through carbon credits?
1: Well, the World Bank has uh, these uh, carbon offsets. They're called clean development mechanisms, and they are transfers that go to developers of large hydro dams. Also, nuclear plants are eligible for these as well, so that's another source of upset in the third world because nuclear plants are being proposed on the basis of there being uh, carbon-free. And we're going to see enormous dislocations if this proceeds. We're creating a new kind of economy. Suddenly, an area of the planet that before had no commercial value will have value if it can become a carbon sink. So we are going to start seeing the end of wildernesses if these schemes proceed.
2: I still don't feel like I really grasp the political economy of this. If the science
1: is in doubt, as you say, what are the interests driving this? There are numerous interests. One interest we haven't touched on yet is the financial interest, which is an immense interest. The financial gain from this new carbon economy vastly outstrips anything that we could imagine that the oil or coal companies um, might have lost by going to it. The number of companies that are planning to cash in in a huge way is, well, <laughs> the list is in the hundreds. and In fact, it's the subject of a new series that I've started in my columns in the National Post. So I started off with Enron, which was a big player in Kyoto. Enron was there helping to draft the documents. The carbon markets that Kyoto envisaged were a major source of future revenue that Enron was anticipating. Enron's only one. What's considered today the largest uh, business in the world, largest industry, is the insurance industry. The insurance industry has been promoting concerns over CO2 for decades, and they have several reasons for promoting a fear of CO2 type catastrophe. One is if we think that we are heading for trouble, it's going to create a demand for additional insurance coverage. So this is a large marketing effort by the insurance industry, which is funding Greenpeace. It's working through the IPCC. It's working through national governments. It's funding conferences around the world showing how, how much devastation can come from uh, CO2. So it's a vast marketing machine. But they have other reasons, too for promoting concerns over climate change. The insurance industry is very heavily regulated. Government regulators decide what rates insurance companies can charge, and consumer advocates do a good job of of restraining insurance company rates. That's not happening with climate change. When the insurance industry says... We're going to have more storms in the future. We have to anticipate more damage. We need higher rates for the future payouts. Governments are giving in. And as a result, the insurance companies are doing very well. You know, Katrina was an enormous disaster, unprecedented in terms of the amount of payouts that the insurance industry had to, had to make. They made money that year despite Katrina and the other hurricanes that happened the same year. They made money because they had they were successful in convincing regulators that they needed to ramp up the the rates that they were collecting. And of course they make a lot more money in the good years and there are a lot more good years than bad years. And what is going to be the effect or has been the effect you've said this a little bit already on the environmental movements? If it turns out that this is all false, they'll have explaining to do.
2: Can you foresee a moment at which one would recognize that it is false?
1: Yes, I think it's likely to happen for several reasons. One is organizations in the third world, environmental organizations in the third world, are fighting this. Another reason is that third world governments are resisting this. So, for example, the government of India has looked into climate change. Its official position is that some parts of India are warming and some parts are cooling. Some glaciers are receding. Some glaciers are advancing. India has found that there's no difference in pattern in recent times as in previous times. And they reject the notion that their country is in any way being harmed by CO2 emissions. And they refuse to limit its economy on the basis of a potential CO2 problem that they don't see. So we're going to have a conflict between the Western governments and the third world governments because the third world governments are saying, if you want us to do this, you have to compensate us. We don't see any scientific basis for changing our economy to suit your global warming concerns. But in a way, I think the biggest change of all may come from the fact that the temperature has stopped increasing. We've had a decade of of no increase. In fact, we've had decreases now. If the scientists are right that we're about to enter a period of cooling, that's going to raise lots of questions with people around the world. And I think it's already happened. Because when I talk to an audience or I talk to people at at a party and the discussion turns to global warming. There's very little conviction in the people I talk to that th- there really is a problem. They believe there's a problem, but only because that's, that's all they've heard. But as soon as they learn that there is skepticism among prominent scientists, they turn almost on a dime. It's not, it's not a concern that they have that ranks with say, their air quality, where they, they can feel it in their bones, or, or water quality, where they have a direct concern.
2: So what would be your view, finally? I know that a lot of the things that would be prescribed against climate change would be things that you would, I would think, support on other grounds.
1: I like the idea of cleaning up the environment. I think we should be targeting the poisons. So coal burning has problems. There's mercury that we have to worry about. There's NOx. There's SOx. CO2 may be a benefit to the environment. We shouldn't be targeting something that could be beneficial. Until recently, the consensus was that CO2 was, was of enormous benefit. It used to be called the gas of life. It's only recently that we've started to see this gas as being harmful. So I believe what environmentalists should be doing is targeting the true poisons eliminating the subsidies to the energy-producing industries and the energy-consuming industries, that would do a huge amount to induce conservation, which is all economically based. I think those are very rational approaches, and if we did took those rational approaches, we would find that we are also probably producing less CO2 from fossil fuel. But by targeting CO2, which is... Ubiquitous and making the planet a potential reservoir for our man made schemes to get rid of the CO2, this is is where the real danger lies. Larry, thank you. You're welcome.
0: You've listened to ideas. Our guest was Lawrence Solomon, the executive director of Energy Probe and the author of. The Deniers, world-renowned scientists who stood up against global warming hysteria, political persecution, and fraud. The producer and interviewer was David Cayley. Technical production, Dave Field. Associate producer and webmaster, Liz Naj. If you'd like to learn more about upcoming ideas programs and podcasts, sign up for our weekly online newsletter. Just go to our website at cbc.ca slash ideas and follow the links. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy. For more on all of our CBC podcasts, head to cbc.ca slash podcasting.